0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we'll find out how much it costs sub-Saharan African countries to train all the doctors and nurses who end up in the UK, US, Canada and Australia.
1: If we had taken far more liberal assumptions, then the cost goes up above $10 billion, for example.
0: But before that, Tessa Richards, the BMJ's analysis editor, Talks to the Hungarian Health Minister about the problems facing his country.
2: Healthcare systems throughout Europe are struggling to cope with the impact of the economic downturn. And over the past months, we've heard a lot of concerns in relation to the UK. But of course, all countries are affected. And this week, we look at the particular problems and challenges of Hungary and talk with the Hungarian Minister of Health, Dr. Miklas Zoszka, about how he's trying to introduce reforms to meet the challenges and problems. Dr. Miklos Soshka, I'd like to thank you very much for, for joining us this morning. It would seem that Hungary has among the worst health statistics in Europe and that investment in the health sector is low. Um, perhaps you'd like to enlarge on the, um, the health status.
3: That's true. We are lagging behind in, in many of the statistics, cardiovascular, mortality and morbidity. Oncological uh, mortality and mobility, and uh, at some cases we are leading the charts. It is also true that starting with uh, 2006, they pulled out a lot of funding from the operational costs. Fortunately, there is a, there is a very high structure of fund investment coming in uh, into the healthcare. So when we are talking about investing in health or investing in the healthcare sector, we have relatively high investments going into uh, reshaping the care provision structure, but the operational funding was uh, gradually decreasing. Uh, the public expenditure on health is around 4%. And together with the private expenditure, it, uh, it goes somewhere around 7
2: 7.5%. Can I ask, um, to what extent... Concerns about the quality, equity, safety of healthcare are reflected in media debate in in Hungary.
3: Equity and uh, and quality is an issue, and also accessibility. Uh, in 2006 and seven, there was a, a major structural change initiated by the then government, but there was not at all a strategic plan behind uh, those restructurings. So the accessibility to various health services decreased a lot. And we also uh, understand that there is a high geographical uh, inequity in uh, access to care, and the citizens are suffering from the lower quality. But uh, I have to tell you that comparing to the NHS, the Hungarians, uh, even though that uh, in 2006 the GDP percentage of the public expenditure for health was 5.5%, there were no waiting lists to access the GP was only the question of the day. So the citizens did not have to wait weeks. So when, when you're looking on uh, accessibility issues and uh, and the medical outcome of the services, uh, the Hungarian healthcare is quite comparable to many much more uh, expensive health services in Europe.
2: Well, that sounds like a salutary lesson for, for us to learn from Hungary. I wonder if you could give us a little bit more information then about... The concerns of patients. One of the things the paper draws out is that uh, patients have to pay quite a lot of -of out-of-pocket expenses and informal payments.
3: So the patients have to pay out-of-pocket at the pharmacies. So out-of-pocket payments are regular parts of the system when it comes to, let's say, pharmaceuticals or medical devices or dentistry, for example. But uh, above on this, uh, there are various forms of informal payments. One is the sort of gratitude money uh, that the patients pay to the doctors or, and the nurses and uh, other personnel that they were treated. That has a deep uh, root in the culture because in the 40s, when the communist class system was introduced, they set the health professionals' salaries lower as the as the working classes. Uh, And unfortunately, in in times of economic crisis, this is very difficult to change in such magnitude as it is demanded by the professionals. But there are also other forms of informal payments from the pharmaceutical companies paid under the cover of various market research or other research uh, labels directly to physicians and nurses. And there are also informal payments coming from other parts of the medical industry.
2: Yes, in the paper, much focus is put on the the brain drain of skilled uh, nurses and doctors. And I wonder if you could explain just how bad this is.
3: There's a very strong force field of migration, and for example, two thirds of the senior medical students and the medical residents want to leave. Fortunately, out of this two thirds, only 10% is leaving. But since Uh, Hungary joined the EU, we lost 10% of the active medical population. And before the EU accession, the number one target country was the US. But since EU accession, the number one target countries are England and Ireland. Second is uh, the Scandinavian countries. And the third is the German-speaking territories plus Netherlands.
2: Is this because of low salaries?
3: The number one factor is salary. Number two is professional opportunities. And then it is a combined uh, phenomenon. Partly they uh, blame the hierarchical nature of the Hungarian uh, healthcare organizations and the lack of teamwork, the uh, lack of professional opportunities, the lack of development opportunities and training opportunities, which are not practical enough. And there is also another factor to blame, and that's the socialization process of the health professionals. Uh, for example, 98% of the graduating medical students want to work in highly specialized healthcare facilities and in big cities. So somehow the medical education misses the point of socializing the uh, medical students to the tasks and to the, to the mission of primary care, for example.
2: Yes, that uh, brings us on to um, the changes that you've introduced over the last year or so, are you making any changes in um, medical education to strengthen um, primary care? Um, and are you making any other changes in the terms and conditions uh, of, under which doctors and nurses work?
3: We are doing various things. On the first hand, I completely changed the communication paradigm. Previously, the leaders of the healthcare sector They used the divide and impair principle, so many times they provoked hostility between the patients uh, needing more access to care and the health professionals, Uh, and many times the health professionals were presented in the media by the government as ignorant, uh, hunting for gratitude money, and since I have arrived, I'm giving all the respect to the health professionals. It is very difficult to manage a human resources crisis uh, in times of economic crisis. We do not have uh, resources to raise the salaries generally, but we have launched various scholarship programs, and we're also launching human resources development programs. For example, we are raising the salaries of the mentors and tutors uh, that are working with medical residents, and we also oblige the universities that they have to contract these mentors and tutors because we understood that many times the universities did not pay the mentors and tutors who are unmotivated. We have great potential in the Hungarian healthcare system. For example, we have a universal uh, patient ID number in the acute hospital care. We have a DRG system and the GPs reporting the patient records and the administrative details online to the health insurance fund we have the basic infrastructure uh, to introduce care coordination to make the gps not only gatekeepers but the supervisors of the patient pathway and we have a very strong outpatient service so when we are setting up the new payment system uh, that we especially incentivize uh, the primary care and the outpatient services to provide complete care So care coordination and the new incentives will improve efficiency and sustainability. Uh, You shouldn't forget that the government have a two-third majority in the parliament. So uh, when we introduced the the smoke ban, it took us five weeks uh, to close the debate in parliament. And we also introduced uh, a cheap tax.
2: This is the fat tax, is it?
3: Yes, a public health tax uh, on the various uh, goods. And, you know, it was a high majority behind that tax. So we could do a lot in influencing behavior through regulation.
2: There's a big debate about, of course, about uh, these um, taxing unhealthy foods, although there's not a lot of evidence of impact. So could you explain exactly what taxes that you've been able to introduce and how you're assessing the public health impact of introducing those taxes?
3: The tax is uh, provided on sweet beverages, uh, energy drinks, and uh, salty products. We have recognized that companies who were producing uh, instant soups, for example, sometimes they put 70% salt uh, in the soup. The companies are already changing the formula. There are some preferred products in the, in the Hungarian sweet industry, and they are already changing the formulas, putting less sugar and putting less salt in the various products. So we see that regulation is already kicking in. We will be very eager in evaluating the results.
2: This could then be an area um, where Hungary is showing the way to the rest of the European Union. Commissioner Dali, I understand, is is still on the fence uh, in terms of recommending this across the EU as a whole.
3: We are more than happy to be the guinea pig in that field. We believe that influencing the consumer environment with these taxes uh, is an interesting opportunity. And you know, the Hungarian public health records are so bad uh, that we have to act fast and we have to experiment. This public health tax is earmarked and I will be able to raise the salaries out of it.
2: Well, that's an extremely important move. Well, it's very good to hear this um, level of optimism in a country which on the face of it is, is um, facing peculiarly difficult challenges within Europe.
3: We experienced very difficult times in history and you know, I'm really uh, the type that do not want to give in. But the average life expectancy of a person in my chair was 20 months and I'm just coming to reach that average. One of the issues that I'm, I'm very much concerned about is the political sustainability of healthcare reforms? We are changing direction so many times, and this is not only true for Hungary. Uh, when I look on the British uh, examples and the and the ever-changing reforms, uh, there is a question of the political sustainability of reforms. One of the reasons I have a certain optimism is that so far we are managing uh, this part of the difficult situation. And despite of the extremely difficult situation on the human resources front, so far we were able to manage a positive attitude towards the reforms that we initiated because these reforms are targeting real problems. So we, we do not want to be more clever than anybody. We want to give solutions to the problems, and so far it is taken positively by the professionals and by the, by the public.
2: Yes, very good to hear this um, and I wish you luck uh, with implementing these reforms. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. It isn't
0: only within the EU that healthcare worker migration is an issue. The breadth of the problem has led the WHO to create its Global Code of Practice on the International Recruitment of Health Personnel. And a recent paper on BMJ.com attempts to quantify the cost of this to sub-Saharan countries in particular. To talk about that, I'm joined on the line by Edward Mills, the Canada Chair of Global Health at the Faculty of Health Science Research at the University of Ottawa. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Edward.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Now, what you tried to do was put a sort of financial cost to these countries for the training of these physicians who then um, migrate elsewhere. So uh, to do that, obviously, you need two things, data and uh, a model. So could you tell us about that? Sure.
1: So one of the reasons that we looked at this is that the Global Code has a recommendation that there be uh, financial assistance to countries that benefit from the immigration of of physicians uh, to wealthier nations we looked at uh, nine HIV affected countries in Africa that also had functioning medical schools. And we looked at the number of graduates from those nine countries who were then practicing medicine in Canada, United States, United Kingdom, and Australia. Mm -hmm. And based on the cost of educating somebody in their source country, in the African country, we were able to estimate lost investment assuming that the majority of those African countries had paid the majority of the costs of the student's education. Uh, we've looked at the lost investment from those countries because the physicians are now practicing in wealthier countries. We were also able to assume the savings to the destination countries, so those wealthier countries, by having physicians that didn't need to go back to medical school.
0: What did you find when you plugged that that data together?
1: Overall, we found that the African countries, the nine African countries that are worst affected by HIV, and also have a functioning medical school, have lost about 2.2 billion dollars worth of investment in medical education. Um, that's with a relatively conservative estimate, whereby we didn't uh, assume very high costs and we also didn't apply much of an interest rate. Uh, if, if the African countries had simply invested that money. If we had taken far more liberal assumptions, then the cost goes up above $10 billion, for example. We also found that the savings to the four destination countries was very large, with the UK benefiting the most, over $2 billion worth of uh, savings. Mm. But in general, it was about $4.5 billion worth of savings amongst those four countries.
0: When doctors go abroad, they will send some, some money home. Were you able to figure that into your uh, estimations?
1: So when anybody leaves their home country, there is an assumption that they are going to send money back to their home countries. We call this remittances. And the amount of remittances that go from wealthy countries back to Africa is assumed to be in the tens of billions of dollars. Uh, we're not really sure who's sending that money in terms of we know that where the money arrives into the African countries, and we often will know exactly who it goes to, but we don't know where it comes from. So we don't know if this is coming from physicians, for example. There is some evidence to indicate that physicians do send money back to their families. Um, One of the reasons that we didn't build this into the model is that any remittances that occur go back to individual families. They don't go back to the state typically. So even though a family may benefit from a physician residing abroad, there's no evidence to suggest that this goes back into the health system. So you're promoting the wealthy maintaining their wealth.
0: Absolutely. So what now with this? Uh, presuming that we can't stop this migration happening because it's not necessarily about people being poached to wealthier countries. It's about, uh, you know, there's a range of issues there which which might make people move. So what do you think... Um, should be done to, to help these sub-Saharan African countries pay for this?
1: Well, that's a very good point. Personally, I think that the age of viewing this as poaching is probably over. Uh, I, I don't see active recruitment of health workers anymore the way that we used to just a few years ago. Uh, we have to look at what the reasons are that people want to be leaving their uh, their home countries and moving to some place that maybe they aren't uh, aren't familiar with or they're simply seeking a, a better career or better opportunities for their family so a lot of the time there are a variety of push factors and in african countries this may be because they're being paid a low wage because the work conditions are bad because their uh... lack of opportunity for themselves or for their family or safety issues these are all very valid issues that the african countries need to take into consideration you know in a country like canada or in the u.k we pay physicians a reasonable wage because we we value and recognize their worth the african countries have to do the same thing uh... in order to maintain them So there is a new f- there there needs to be a new framework of looking at the value of physicians in these countries uh, rather than just assuming that we're going to be able to fill those positions through task shifting or uh, non-physician clinicians, for example.
0: And how about the idea of actually countries like the UK, US, Canada, Australia, actually paying cash back to to some of these countries where, where their physicians come from?
1: Well, I'm not sure that the cash model is a sensible model. These countries, uh, these wealthier countries, are already donating a considerable amount in foreign aid. But it doesn't appear to be directed frequently at education or at medical education. The exception to that is the United States with their PEPFAR, where they have pledged $130 million to train 140,000 new health workers over the next five years, which is an astounding initiative and shows fantastic leadership on behalf of the United States. It's something that countries such as the UK and Canada and Australia should be trying to emulate or perhaps be joining. Uh, it seems obvious to me that if Canada wants to make, if Canada, for example, wants to make a long-term, sustainable effort at improving the health systems, then they need to be doing so through medical education. Many of the countries that we've looked at, that are that are destination countries, look like Canada, UK, US, Australia, have fantastic medical education systems that have revamped how medical education is done around the world. Um, could we perhaps transport some of that innovation also to Africa?
0: So it's a case there of, of donor countries really uh, gaining from, from giving these resources out. Um, Edward, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Duncan. And the research paper with that model and the data is available now online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to the editor of The Arches about death rates in Ambridge. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.